This evening's reading is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in his honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. Please do keep Psalm 149 open in front of you. And as we come to God's word, let's pray and ask for his help. Our Father, we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word this evening and that you would stir us by your spirit, uh, that we might praise you more and that we might tell more people of your salvation. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We are the champions, my friends. What's the next line, everyone? It's all right, you're allowed to sing now. And we'll keep on fighting till the end. Very good. It's an interesting thought, isn't it, that a group of people are saying, we're the champions, but there's still a fight on. It's not over yet. The title belongs to us, but the task we've been given to do, well, that still needs completing. It's like the Olympic long jumper who knows they've won the gold medal because everybody else has had their final jump and hasn't beaten them. They know they're victorious. But yet they put their their heart and energy and everything into their last jump, maybe going for the world record. The knowledge that such people are the champions just spurs them on to the finish line. If I can mix my track and field metaphors there. Our song of praise for this evening, Psalm 149, reflects something of that feeling and experience for the people of God. This is a song that's to be sung by a supergroup. They're called God's Faithful People. Uh, Look at the two ends of the psalm with me. We see them mentioned there, verse 1. The Lord's praise is to be sung in the assembly of his faithful people. And at the end, verse 9, carrying out the words of this psalm is the glory of all God's faithful people. Now, this group, the faithful people, they are not people who never sin or never do anything wrong. They're not a people who are proud of their own achievements or their own moral behavior. But rather, this is a, this is a name, this is a category of people who have received God's grace. They are the ones God has loved He has joined himself to them. He's made a covenant with them. And as a result, these people who have received God's grace, they want to stick with him. They want to be faithful to him. And they want to show the the grace and love they've received to one another and to the world around them. And so they praise him in the good times and in the bad. 
in the moments of great victory and, as verse 5 hints at, on the days when they are laid low on their beds. And not only do these people want to praise God, but they also want to carry out his plans to establish God's reign as king of the whole earth. You may have noticed this song comes in two sections. We're going to look at them in turn. Uh, The second one is a bit more tricky for us to understand and apply, but looking at the first one first is going to help us. So first of all, in verses 1 to 5, we see that this is a new song for humble victors, a new song for humble victors. Did you notice how this group, the faithful people, they're not singing this song glorying in anything they themselves have done, as if they they are the champions on merit because they've performed the best. No, the focus of this song is on the Lord and praising him. So all of the singing and rejoicing in this psalm is directed towards the Lord. So let's let's run through it again from the top. Let's start at verse 1. Praise the Lord, the psalmist writes. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly. Verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him. May the praise of God be in their mouths, verse 6. And again at the end, praise the Lord. Who is this God that the people are to praise? Well, we're told there in verse 2, he's none other than Israel's maker, and he is their king. He is doubly worthy of praise. He's the creator, and he's the rightful ruler. He's this people's true king. Sometimes uh, we look at people in authority, and I wonder if you think this sometimes as well. We look at people with power and authority, and we think, what has that person done to deserve this title or this position? What have they ever done for us ordinary people down here? Why should we give respect or attention to them? Why should we listen to them? Well, this king, the king of Zion here, he has done great things for his people, and he continues to do great things for them. Look at verse 4 with me. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. This is why the the Lord, the true king, deserves his people's praise. Isn't that extraordinary, that verse there, verse 4? The supreme king over all the earth, the one who, if we were to have a coronation service, would be worthy of the most lavish and glorious coronation you could imagine... What is this king doing? He's himself handing out crowns. And he's not giving them to his cronies, nor to the cream of the crop, but he's giving them to the humble. He's delighting in a people that he has raised up from a lowly position. In true kingly style, he's won the victory for them, and he's inviting them to share in all that he's achieved. He crowns the humble with victory. And verse 1 tells us that this king, the Lord, is worthy of a new song of praise. Now, this phrase, a new song, has a particular meaning throughout the whole of Scripture. There are nine times in the Bible where we read of people singing a new song. There's six in the Psalms, one in Isaiah, 
2 in the book of Revelation. Your homework this week is to see if you can find all nine of them. And as you do, you'll discover they all have something in common. So this idea of a new song crops up when the people of God are in dire straits, they're in a desperate place. Perhaps they've got enemies surrounding them, or they're down a pit, or they're just aware of their own weakness and sinfulness and inability to do anything about their predicament. And then what happens is God, the Lord, he intervenes. He delivers his people. He rescues them. He, he lifts them up. He maybe fights their enemies for them. He defeats his opponents. He brings his people from a place of desperation and, and vulnerability to a place of safety and security. He brings a, a new situation for them. He establishes them in a new safe place. And then you find his people singing a new song. There's one song, uh, I think, that um, captures this quite well in the book of Exodus. It's a really helpful example of this. And it actually relates to Psalm 149. It has some overlap. Um, The Exodus song isn't officially a a new song. It's not labeled like that. But it's kind of like the prototype. It's the demo version for this whole idea of the new song in the Bible. It comes in Exodus chapter 15. And the context is in Exodus chapter 14... The Lord has just delivered his people. He's brought them safely through the Red Sea. He's judged their enemies, the Egyptians. Moses, a few moments earlier, had stood on the shores of the sea with the enemy closing in behind. And he said to the people, the Lord will fight for you. And indeed he did. And when the people saw the victory the Lord had won for them, they couldn't help but sing a new song of praise to the Lord, the God who had become their salvation. And back then, that song was accompanied, rather like here in Psalm 149, with Miriam and others playing timbrels, which are a bit like a tambourine, and with dancing. Psalm 149, back to our passage, verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. So this God, our God... This is the God who time and again crowns his people with victory. In other words, he he saves them, he, he rescues them, he delivers them from a place of danger to a place where he reigns, a place where he will delight in his people, the humble ones who he has exalted. It's interesting, isn't it, that the people who share in God's victory here are simply described as the humble. The faithful people of God are those they have, those who know they've got nothing to offer God when it comes to their rescue. We don't contribute anything to that. In fact, on the contrary, the, the true faithful people of God know that we're all too aware that just life isn't going the way it should and that we're not living with God as king as we should. And by nature, we've, we've all turned our backs on our maker and king. We don't deserve his rescue. In fact, we deserve to be on, on the other side, the defeated side, the wrong side of God's victory. To be rightly judged and punished by a holy God for turning our hearts away from him, rebelling against him in our, in our thoughts and our actions. But this same God offers us a rescue He offers salvation, not for those who consider themselves to be spiritual winners, 
but those who know they are spiritual losers. And unlike the song by Queen and Freddie Mercury, God does have time for losers. He came to save losers and turn them into victors by his gracious victory on their behalf. And so this new song of praise becomes this people's anthem, both when they're first rescued, that immediate moment, and throughout their lives. It's a song that's going to carry on into eternity as the redeemed people of God praise their king. Well, how does God bring salvation to people today? Here it says in verse 4 that God delights in his people. And this feels like it's a high point in the story of Old Testament Israel. Because if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's quite clear that it wasn't every day that God delighted in his people. Far from it. And in fact, none of us, nobody by nature, can claim that God delights in us. It definitely wasn't always like this in Israel's experience. But yet there came a day when God declared his perfect delight, not in a people, but in in one person, one man. Someone who God announced as his chosen king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the start of Mark's gospel, if you've ever read that account of Jesus' baptism, uh, here's what this voice from heaven says, God's voice. He says, you are my son to Jesus, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. See what's going on there? God is delighting in Jesus. And that means that when you and I and when any of you put your faith in Jesus, when you receive Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin, when you make Jesus king of your life, then what happens is that we, by faith, we become united, we become joined to Jesus in such a way that just like the Lord God can say, I delight in my son, he will also say in an unbreakable way that he delights even in us, his people. We humble sinners can be those who the Lord delights in. What a wonderful thing the gospel does for us. In Christ, and only in Christ, this this experience can be ours. This unbreakable relationship with God can be yours. In Christ, we can say the Lord has delighted in us lowly sinners. He's brought us salvation through the work of his King. And that's worth singing a new song about, isn't it? A song of praise of all that Jesus has done to rescue us from the pit of our sin. If you don't already know that God delights in you, that he has rescued you, then this psalm invites you to humble yourself, to to leave your spiritual performance categories behind and come to Jesus to acknowledge that you need Jesus as your King and Saviour, and to turn from your sin and to follow him. Now, being a Christian in that way, following Jesus in that way, is is not easy, it's actually hard, It's, it's not cheap, it's costly. But every day, beginning today, you can know the delight of God, your Maker and Saviour. If you know this salvation already, then... Don't forget it. Don't lose the wonder of it, of what God in Christ has done for you. 
Let's let this salvation fill us with true joy every time we consider it. And when we gather together as church, let's let this new song of praise be a constant reminder and celebration of all that we've received from God's hands. Now, there are many good um, biblical reasons for us to sing as a church family. You can um, ask me about some more of them later. Uh, But one of them is just captured by this psalm here. Uh, One of the reasons God has created and ordained singing to be an appropriate response uh, is to give us a, a vehicle to praise him for our salvation. So singing in, singing in church is not something that, that we do to sort of try and persuade God to do something or to twist his arm to do something in our lives. No, we sing because God has done great things for us. That's the pattern we see in, in the Exodus and the whole of the Bible. And this praise of God's name is rightly accompanied by engaging our whole bodies. That's what good singing does. It engages every bit of ourselves. And so the praise of God on our lips is accompanied by our dancing feet and other instruments add to the celebration and accompaniment. And of course, sometimes we good Brits shy away from these verses of exuberant praise in the Psalms, don't we? Especially if we're not a fan of uh, loud music or dancing, or if it's not the done thing in our culture. And it is true that sometimes these things have taken on a life of their own in various Christian traditions. I think that the Psalms show us that these things have their their place, uh, but also that their place is not center stage. Our songs of praise, when we sing together, should not get us thinking, wow, what great instrument playing today, or wow, what great dancing, we were all really moving together to that song. No, our songs of praise should be getting our whole selves thinking and rejoicing, saying, wow, what a great God we have. See how he has saved us, his people. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. And as we do that together as the assembly of God's faithful people, well, there are other principles in play as we, as we sing and dance and play our instruments. Uh, we're going to consider how best it's going to help the rest of our church family to declare God's praise and focus on his salvation. So yes, let us rejoice with every aspect of our being, but let's make sure the Lord and his work is always center stage. Let's help others, one another, rejoice in him by being aware of others as we, as we sing and move and rejoice. And maybe don't shake our tambourines too loudly in somebody else's ear or set our big harp up right in the way, obstructing somebody else's view and things like that. You get the idea. By God's grace to us in Jesus, we are the humble victors. And so we sing a new song. And that song propels us on to participate in what God is doing in the world. Uh, That's the focus of the the rest of the psalm, verses 6 to 9, as we look secondly at this sharp sword for faithful witnesses. A sharp sword for faithful witnesses. This psalm is the second to last psalm. It's sort of part of the, if the psalms were a book, this is part of the back cover And um, we read earlier a psalm from the front cover, Psalm 2, and he read bits of it for us, telling us how God's king will conquer other kings and nations and will claim them for himself. And this bit, the back cover, Psalm 149, well, it fills out some of this some more. It explains 
how this king's going to do it. And he's going to do it through his faithful people. He's going to do it through the community of the king. It's through these people that God achieves his ultimate plans for the nations and their rulers. So, the puzzling question at this point in our look at this psalm is, how will God's people conquer the nations? Well, for Old Testament Israel back then, the original singers of this psalm, it would have meant waging literal warfare against nations and kings who rejected God. That's very much what verses 6 to 9 encouraged them to do. But just like in the first half of the psalm where the coming of Jesus made a difference to how we understand these verses, uh, so it does in the second half as well. So in in verses 1 to 5, we saw that because of Jesus, we can now know that that God delights in us. Jesus makes a difference. And because of Jesus as well, this role that God's people have in relation to the nations, the part we're going to play, that's also transformed. It's given a a new focus. It's sort of given an added dimension. Now, sadly, there have been times in history when the church has misunderstood exactly how God's kingdom will come on this earth. And despite uh, efforts, it doesn't arrive when Christians try to impose submission to God, either using military or politics or just pushing a moral agenda. So no, to apply these verses today, the key thing we need to do is listen to God's King, the Lord Jesus. We need to listen to what he says and does regarding this whole area of judgment and what part God's people are to play in that. And one of the striking things about Jesus, if you've ever read one of his biographies in the Gospels, is that when you read about Jesus, you've got all these other people around him, and a lot of them, particularly early on, they're a bit confused by Jesus. They really don't think he was what they were expecting from a Messiah. They thought they knew that particular job description. They thought they knew what God's king should be like, what he should be up to, and when he should be doing it. And Jesus just wasn't ticking that box. He wasn't performing in that way. People who often followed Jesus thought that because he was the Messiah, maybe at any moment he's going to judge God's enemies. He's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to get rid of the religious puppet show. And then he's going to bring in God's kingdom. And then uh, that's going to have all this stuff like in Psalm 149, vengeance, punishment, binding, sentencing, and so on. But Jesus comes, and it's almost as if he has a different pace. He has a different agenda in mind. It will include these things, but he gives them their proper place. So he does things like in the synagogue, taking the the scroll of Isaiah, unrolling it, reading a bit of chapter 61, and declaring that this passage is fulfilled in him. He's saying the spirit of the Lord was on him, that he had been sent into the world to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, Recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And actually, Isaiah's in mid-flow there, but Jesus stops, he rolls the scroll, and he sits down. The next line in Isaiah 61 reads, And the day of vengeance 
of our God. But Jesus pauses. He rolls the scroll, and he begins to show all of us who read about this and all who were there at the time that there's going to be a gracious delay in God's judgment so that people can be saved. And when his followers say, Oh, Jesus, that Samaritan village that didn't welcome you, should we just call down some fire from heaven on them now? You know, like Elijah used to do in the Old Testament. Should we do it too, Jesus? Jesus says no. And he rebukes his disciples, James and John even, for asking that. Now, this all doesn't deny and doesn't take anything away from the fact that one day, Jesus will judge the world. One day, wicked regimes and all who reject Jesus will be judged. If you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus talking clearly about that as well. But that day is not now. God has set a day. But now there is, there's grace, there's a window. There's time where others who deserve his judgment might instead receive his salvation. That's why Jesus came to this earth. John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that verse, for God so loved the world, etc. The very next verse, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so King Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on an armored war horse, but on a lowly donkey. He's crowned not with gold, but with thorns. He identifies not with the champions, but with the losers, the rebels, the sinners. So much so that he's he's willing to, to join himself to people like that who have rejected God. That he might take their place and uh, and die their death to pay for their sin and set them free. It's on the the cross at his moment of greatest weakness where Jesus wins the greatest battle, the greatest victory that um, humanity has ever seen. He triumphs over his enemies. He, He disarms the spiritual powers and authorities that are opposed to God and his people. And he sets his own people free. And after his resurrection, he sends his own people out, his faithful people, into the world not to judge, not to bind, not to inflict punishment, but to make disciples, saying, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, all that sounds good, you might be thinking, but what are we to make of the verses in the psalm? They seem to be saying that God's faithful people will actually be participating in this judgment with God. And actually, we, as we read our Bibles closely for the rest of the whole Bible, the New Testament, we are taught then that, that there will be a day where it will be appropriate for the people of God to share in God's final judgment. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminds another church in Corinth this time that actually one day they, they will share in the judgment of the world. Now, you and I might be comfortable with Jesus doing that job, Uh, but maybe not so much with ourselves or or the person next to you doing that job. But don't worry, we might not be capable of perfect judgment now. But then we will be like Jesus and his justice will prevail. 
Until that day, though, we have a sharp sword, not a physical sword with which to to bring judgment, but something even sharper, uh, the word of God, the good news about Jesus. And when we share this word, this good news, when we proclaim it to people, when we tell people about Jesus, then this word itself, it's at work um, almost inside people. This sharp sword, it's uncovering every corner of people's hearts that set themselves up against God. It warns people that judgment is coming, that there is a day of reckoning, and they need to turn to Jesus. And it also reveals to us this sharp sword, this word, that there is rescue available. And so the mission we have today as followers of Jesus is to share what God has done in our lives with others, to point others to Jesus the King, who will come as judge, but who today can be their saviour. And so as Christians, our hope for the future is not that uh, the church will win a particular culture war in our country. Neither is our mission strategy to bring judgment now on the enemies of Christ and his people. Rather, we want to see Nations, kings, neighbors, even here in Surrey, coming to know Christ as king before he comes as the judge. So our task before that day is to tell others about the maker and king of the whole earth, how he's offered them salvation, and to see this king gradually conquering more and more and more hearts by his grace, a mission that amazingly he invites us to share in. Who's doing the conquering in Afghanistan at the moment? Well, the news tells us it's it's the Taliban, it's obvious, it's a pretty easy ride for them. Let me tell you who's doing the real conquering out there at the moment, who the real victors are. I think there are brothers and sisters in Christ, the Afghani Christians that Fred prayed for earlier, those who are holding fast to their testimony about Jesus, those who plead the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb for their salvation, and who aren't uh, shrinking from sharing this message of rescue with those around them. Believers like those in Afghanistan and in many other countries around the world who who don't love their lives more than they love telling people about Jesus. Well, along with such believers, we can take comfort that one day God will judge the world in righteousness. That nobody anywhere will get away with any sin. And so sometimes it's not, it's not wrong to use these psalms to help us to pray that God's justice will be done in the end. But also because Christ has come, we can now also pray, we should now also pray for the salvation of such rebels. That their sin would be judged in Jesus on the cross as their substitute. That God would put faith in their hearts to receive him as king. So let's do what Jesus taught us, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, that the grace of God would conquer their hearts. What's your natural reaction when you see wickedness in God's world, be it in Kabul or Karl Scholten, in Syria or Banstead? 
when we see rebellion against God and sin, what's our attitude? Is it fear? Is it concern that others, including us, might not be influenced by such people? Or is it to think to ourselves, these people need Jesus. And as long as God graciously provides days for them to hear about Jesus, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to support others who tell others about Jesus. I hope that the Lord would change our hearts, that we would think more like that more often. I was watching a film this week uh, set in a conflict, a war zone. And uh, one young man in the story, he needed to prove that he was truly on the side of uh, these older men that he looked up to and wanted to fight with. And so he was given the task of uh, shooting one of the other side for the first time. And you can see him in the film wrestling with this. He's, he's nervous when the moment comes. He, he wants to share in, in the glory of his heroes. He wants to be known as one of them. But he, he wonders if he can really go through with it. Well, what is the glory of God's faithful people today? Before the day of judgment, our glory is not to bring judgment, to execute judgment, either outwardly or in our hearts against people. But our glory today, the marker of God's faithful people today, is that we are faithful witnesses to Jesus, that we share this powerful, sharp gospel message with others. The victory has been won. Our creator and redeemer has rescued us. And so we declare his praise. We call others to turn from the wrath to come by trusting in Jesus. So, faithful people of God, by God's grace, we are the champions. So let's keep on being faithful witnesses to the end. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed that you would come uh, and save uh, disobedient rebels like us. We are so aware of our sin and how much we don't deserve your mercy. But Lord, now we have received your salvation. We pray that the joy of that, that knowing that you delight in us, might spur us on to tell others about your saving grace. Please strengthen us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.